But what we're going to be doing this morning, surprise, surprise, is we're going to talk about the Bible, right? Hopefully, you come to church every morning expecting to talk about the Bible, but we're going to continue in our series, our preaching series, on the core values of Harvest Liberty Lake Church. And the core value that I want to talk about this morning is the core value of personal Bible study. Our hope is that the people who gather here regularly and call Harvest their home church are not just going to be committed to gathering here to hear God's word taught, but who also are going to be committed to studying God's word personally throughout the week. And we feel a, a responsibility, myself as the pastor and other leaders here, to encourage that and to equip you to do that during the week. And so that's really what this morning is going to be about. And so we've been doing this study of core values uh, for the last couple weeks. We've talked about the core value of gospel centrality. We've talked about the core value of personal evangelism. And this morning, we're going to talk about personal Bible study. And so let me read this core value for you as we begin uh, this morning's message. We believe that it is important to preach the Bible, but to also equip and encourage God's people to read the Bible personally. We seek to accomplish this through preaching, Sunday school classes, shared ministry tools, and resources. Personal Bible reading is one of the most crucial aspects of making and maturing disciples. And so as we consider this, let us give consideration to the Bible specifically. You may or may not know this, but the Bible, even today, continues to be the best-selling book of all time. According to recent research, there are 20 million Bibles sold in the United States each year, which is a large number. The average Christian, according to this same research article from Lifeway, says that the average Christian owns up to nine Bibles in their home. Some of you are thinking about the Bibles that you have laying around your house. Do I have nine? Do I have more than nine? Right? But yet, sadly, even though 20 million Bibles are sold every year, even though the average Christian owns nine Bibles, let alone the digital uh, access you have to the Bible through uh, a phone or a tablet, only 19% of Christians that were surveyed in this research study read the Bible every day. And so we live in a resource-rich world in which we have God's word at our fingertips, more so than any culture and any time in all of history, and yet only 19% of Christians read their Bible on a daily basis or regularly. And so what, what I want to hopefully encourage and um, maybe even bring a little conviction here is that we need to renew our passion for personal Bible study, that it is the ordained means from God for us to know him and to grow in our relationship with him. That to be in God's word is to be growing in your walk with Christ. Maybe you have a shared experience as, as I do. Um, I'll share a little bit of my own testimony of sorts, but really a, a testimony of me starting to read God's word and seeing and experiencing the life transformation that took place as a result of that. I was fortunate that when I was young, roughly in second grade, my stepmother actually led me to the Lord after what I thought was a near-death experience. However, it probably wasn't, but in my second grade mind, it, it was. And so I genuinely believe that I gave my life to Christ when I was in second grade. But for much of my life, up until my later years in high school, 
there wasn't a whole lot of growth or commitment to the Lord. I think my faith was sincere, but I let my faith in many ways stayed not dormant, but infant-like. And I must confess, the reasons that I had for eventually growing in my faith were, were not the purest. You see, in my later years of high school, like many teenage boys, I began to become aware of some of the females around me, and there were a few that caught my eye. Some really attractive girls, not only on the outside, but what appeared to be the inside as well. I was fortunate enough to have a group of friends that were committed to a local church. Some of these friends were, were some girls, and I found them to be very attractive and wanted to, to, to get to know them better. Let's just say that. But I knew that these girls loved the Lord. I actually believe that that's actually what drew me to them uh, most of all. And so in my teenage mind, what I decided is that I better start, one, going to church, and two, reading my Bible if I was ever going to have a chance with one of these girls. And so as you can see, my, my motive was not the best. But this was the first time in my life that I committed myself to reading God's word regularly. And as I found myself in God's word on a regular basis, I didn't find any girls falling head over heels in love with me. I'll tell you that right now. But I did find myself falling more in love with Jesus. And by his grace, I became more concerned with that relationship than any other earthly relationship here on this earth. And so while I may have started off with bad motives, God's perfect intent took place. And so my hope is if you haven't experienced this in your own life, that you'll be encouraged to go down that path today. Maybe you don't have the purest of motives. Maybe you do. But know that God's word is able to accomplish its purposes. And so our points today, as we'll divide them up, to aid us in our study of God's word is first to see the Bible and the big story that it tells. Right? I think this can be one of the greatest ways in which we can begin to approach daily Bible reading is when we have that big story in mind. And I think that big story always should point us to the person of Christ. And so we'll talk, as, we'll talk about the Bible as one story that is all about Jesus We'll then talk about how to use this larger story to understand some of the smaller stories when we open up to a specific passage, to a specific group of verses. And then I would like to demonstrate some of this Bible study method that I'm going to share with you this morning in the passage of Genesis 22. And so first, let us look at this idea as the Bible as one story that is all about Jesus, right? We all read the Bible different ways. And some of these ways are more helpful than others. You may have gone about your Bible reading and, and opened up maybe to a random part of the scriptures, hoping that this will help you improve upon yourself, right? That you approach the Bible as a self-improvement book. Maybe you open up the scriptures and read until you find that, that nugget, that, that verse that sticks out to you that either encourages you or challenges you. But what I'm hoping today is that you'll read the Bible in order to discover more about Jesus. That these things in and of themselves can, can be good and God can use all these things for his purposes. In fact, any Bible reading is better than no Bible reading, but my hope is that you will begin to read the Bible in a way 
that'll bring you closer to Jesus. And I think this is how Jesus intended us to read the word. I'm gonna maybe recap a little bit from a message that we gave a couple weeks ago. But when Jesus taught his disciples how to read the Bible, what did he do? If you were here a number of weeks ago, you heard me teach through this story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus had been crucified, he had been buried, and he had risen again, but he had not been fully revealed to his disciples. And there were two disciples who were walking back from Jerusalem, disheartened, discouraged on the news of Jesus' death, thinking that this was all over, that was all for naught only to have Jesus as a stranger walk with them and lead them in a Bible study, not knowing who he truly was. Let us review some of these verses that we talked about a number of weeks ago. This comes from Luke 24, chapter 25 through 27. This is Jesus as he's talking with these discouraged disciples, and he said to them, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken,' Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we talked about how exciting of a Bible study this would have been to go through all of the scriptures with it this time was the Old Testament, to go through the first five books, the books of Moses, to go through the prophets, which... Um, in the Jewish mind, not only included the prophets as we know them, but also the historical narratives of the scripture. And to have this stranger point out how all of scripture was meant to point to the person of Christ and what he would do to save us from our sins. Later in this story, Jesus reveals who his true identity is to these men and then disappears from their very sight. And the response of these men is, re is recorded in Luke 24, verses 31 through 32. It says, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I want you to notice something, that this man, who turned out to be Jesus, reveals himself and disappears. And what are these disciples marveling at? The Bible study that he led hours ago. Their hearts are not burning because of this miraculous sight of Jesus disappearing from their very eyes, but Jesus appearing before them in his word, in the scriptures. And this is an experience that I hope that each one of us would experience as we open up God's word, that we can look to it and see Jesus. And I hope to give us some insight on how to do that for yourself later this week. This was not the only instance, however, in which Jesus taught the scriptures and revealed how they pointed to him, but Jesus did this also in his life prior to his crucifixion. We have recorded in Luke chapter 4, Jesus standing up in the synagogue, opening the scriptures in front of a crowd of people, including the religious leaders of the time, and saying how the scriptures bear witness about him. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he begins to quote from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set uh, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the intended and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says that what Isaiah was writing about is what you are seeing right here in front of you, that I am that person. Jesus also was found rebuking the religious leaders of his day, those who were to be experts in God's word and God's law for failing to see how the scriptures lead to Jesus. Let me read these verses from John chapter 5, verses 39. Jesus said to these religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Eternal life is not found in the Bible. Eternal life is found in the person in whom the Bible leads us to, Jesus Christ. Again, John 5, 45 through 46 do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you already, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. You see, all of Scripture, according to Jesus, is meant to lead us to him. This kind of teaching is continued on as Jesus taught his disciples how to read at that time what is their scriptures, exclusively the Old Testament, but yet if you now read the New Testament, you see that it is filled with quotations and allusions to the Old Testament that these disciples, these apostles, were trained by Jesus to read scripture. And we find that in the New Testament, it is all pointing us to Jesus as well. And I don't have time, but in the New Testament are Old Testament quotations in which the apostles show us how this too, these passages too, too, lead to Jesus. But suffice it to say, I'll just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. The apostle Paul writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so Jesus, in his own teaching ministry, taught his disciples to read scriptures a certain way. Not to just look for an encouraging verse. Not to just look for something to apply and to improve your life on, but to look at the scriptures so that you can look at Jesus. And my friends, this is an exciting way to read the scriptures that when you begin to do this on your own and not just reliant on pastors or teachers or Bible study materials, but to learn this method for yourself, it can completely transform your time in God's word as it has mine. See, the most common excuse I hear from, from adults and even you know, students, young people, is I don't read my Bible because it is boring. It's boring. And if the Bible primarily is a book on self-improvement, if it's an instruction manual, then yes, 
I would say it can be boring. How many of you guys, when opening an instruction manual on how to build something, are just riveted by those details? I'm not. But when you open the scriptures expecting to see Jesus, it'll become the most exciting activity you could possibly do. I've experienced this in a number of ways in my life. One of the most surprising ways was when I was in Bible school in one of my Bible classes. And if I'm being honest, it was a Bible class that I was not expecting to be excited to go to each and every week. You see, one of the classes I was required to take was a Greek class. As you may know, the Bible was originally written in Greek, and um, this Bible school, as many Bible schools, believe it is helpful for pastors to have some level of understanding of original languages so as to be better teachers of God's word. But if you've attempted to study Greek and to learn it, it is difficult. And some of you may love learning languages. I am not one of those people. And so I expected this class to be one of the classes that I not only struggled with, but did not look forward to going to. But I was blessed to have a wonderful instructor who opened every class with a devotion before we ever talked about uh, grammatical structures or things of that nature. He would open the scriptures to us and he would demonstrate in many ways what I hope to demonstrate to you this morning. That he would use whatever grammar we're studying that week to show us how that sentence, that structure, that punctuation revealed something about Christ or pointed us to Jesus. And myself and many people in the class at the beginning of the semester dreading to go to that class now look forward to it every week because it was nourishment to our souls that we were encountering Christ through his word. And if God can do that in a Greek class, then he can do that in your own Bible study as well, no matter where you may find yourself in the scriptures. And so, as I said, I want to change the way you approach your Bible reading to not just look for your application of the day, to not just check it off your list or to find those encouraging verses. You can keep those practices, but my hope is that you'll be excited to discover Jesus more and more each time you open his word. And so that brings us to the resource that I just gave you, this bookmark that was passed out earlier. And so this is a tool that you can pick up at this moment that I want to use or encourage you to use in order to change your Bible study methods a little bit and hopefully make it easier to find Jesus in whatever passage you may be looking at. And the concept here is that it is hard at times to understand what the scriptures are saying when you don't have the big picture in mind, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that that whole story can actually be extremely helpful when reading a specific passage, whether it be a specific passage in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And this concept may be helpful when we think about how we consume stories today. Right? We live in an interesting time with regards to storytelling, I think primarily of, of movies and digital entertainment, TV shows. Right? We have things such as Marvel movies, which some of you may be a fan of, many of you may not be a fan of. Less and less of us seem to be a fan of them. The more they go on, there's I don't even know how many of these movies anymore, over 30-something movies about this universe of superheroes. That if you were to go to a Marvel movie today, maybe it's the first movie you ever go to in this universe of superheroes, you may get some enjoyment out of it, but yet if you're sitting next to somebody who's seen every movie, every TV show, 
you may find that they're getting more out of this movie than you have been able to get out because you're jumping right into the middle of a story that started many movies ago. We live in a binge-watching world in which we very rarely jump right into the middle of an episode of some sort of TV show, right? Instead, we start season one, episode one, and we finish all five seasons in a week. Um, Yes, I may or may not have done that a time or two. But we live in this idea of, for better or worse, we like the big stories. We like seeing how everything is woven together. And I would just say that that is your Bible as well. Yes, it is 66 books. Yes, it is written by 40 um, different authors. But yet there is one overarching story that is helpful to have in mind as we read even individual passages. And so take that bookmark Flip it to the side that has the most words on it, the paragraph, okay? That's the easiest way that I, that I can give you instructions are. This is my attempt many years ago to summarize the big story of the Bible and understand that this is a sweeping view, right? That this is a summary of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You can summarize it in the four words, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, if you consider that one word. And underneath is a description of what we mean by these. And so what I want to do is I want to read this with you together to kind of get our bearings of what is the big picture, the big story of the Bible, and then demonstrate how it can be useful for us as we dive into a particular text. So let's start with creation. If you'll follow along in the paragraph with me. Creation, there is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This one God created everything. All of creation exists for two purposes, to glorify God and to reveal who he is. Mankind was the only thing created in the image of God and thus is the most precious of God's creation. Again, brief summary. Moving on to the fall, God's original creation was perfect. However, soon after creation, uh, mankind was deceived and chose to, dis- or, sorry, chose to sin by disobeying God. As a consequence for their disobedience, mankind is sinful by nature and by choice, incapable of having a relationship with God. Furthermore, all creation has been affected by mankind's sin. Now all of creation is subject to death, decay, and suffering. Going on to redemption. Redemption, immediately after mankind's disobedience, God put in place a plan to save them from their sin. In some ways, this plan even preceded that, according to what the scriptures uh, say. Redemption means that God is working to rescue creation from the consequences of the fall by making promises of salvation to mankind time and time again. God's redemption would result in freeing mankind from sin, restoring their relationship with God, and fully repairing the rest of God's creation. God is accomplishing redemption through various promises found in the Bible, Each of these promises leads to Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection is the completion of God's plan of redemption. Last, we have new creation. The end result of God's redemption is a new creation. God's kingdom will be established on earth, and his people will no longer struggle with sin, death, and suffering. All of God's people will be given new bodies, and the rest of creation will be fully restored. Creation will once again be perfect. This is the grand sweeping narrative of what scripture is telling us from Genesis to Revelation. Creation, 
fall, redemption, new creation. And these elements are helpful to keep in mind as we open up to specific passages. And so, to keep these themes in mind as we read scripture, you can flip your bookmark over. We have some questions that can be used of any text of the Bible to help lead you in your study of the scriptures. In thinking of the theme of creation, knowing that God wants to reveal more about himself, we can ask um, of any passage, what does this passage teach me about God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It could be one of the persons of the Trinity. It could be two. It could be all three, depending on the passage you're looking at. But I believe we can understand more about who God is from any passage of Scripture. Secondly, we could ask the question, what consequences of the fall do we see in this passage? Now, the language here is, is intentional. Consequences of the fall. Some may jump too quickly to only thinking of sin. What sort of sin is present in this passage? But as we saw, one of the consequences of the fall is not just sin in this world, not just flaws within humanity, but suffering, disease, death, brokenness in the world. These elements are found throughout Scripture because Scriptures bear witness about the world. And then we can ask, under redemption, in this passage, what is God's redemptive solution to the consequence of the fall? What is God doing in response to this brokenness? It may not be directly in the passage we're reading, but maybe it comes along a little bit later, and it's okay to reach for some of those things. And we know chiefly redemption comes through Jesus. So how does this redemption point us to Jesus if it doesn't explicitly point to him already? And then lastly, well, maybe the most new or sometimes the most difficult, but in many ways has become one of the greater blessings as I've used this method, asking the question, what is our future hope in the new creation? If there's a consequence of the fall, if there's a particular sin, if there's a particular kind of suffering, and there's, there's a promise in Christ, but yet so many of those promises, we are still waiting for their ultimate fulfillment in the new creation. And so to be a bit imaginative at times and to wonder, what will it be like when all of this is done? What a relief will that be in our lives? And so this is the, the Bible bookmark that I want to give to you that we'll go through. But really, the, the intended purpose of creating a resource like this is in some way to take a little bit of the mystery away from what myself and other pastors do on a week-in, week-out basis. That I want it to feel a little bit like that scene in The Wizard of Oz, when you have the Wizard of Oz and that giant projection hologram and being in awe of, of what's taking place only to find the curtain be revealed and there's somebody back there just pulling levers. I know I've sat through many messages, particularly growing up, where I've seen a Bible teacher faithfully teach the word and faithfully point to Jesus and just wonder, how does he do that? And my attempt this morning is to pull back that curtain and show you this is how not only I do it, but how you can do it as well. And so I, I hope that this will be a way in which you will come to read the scriptures and be encouraged by. And so with all that being said, let us now move and, and end our time with a little bit of a demonstration. And so keep that bookmark handy, but also turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. 
We're going to read the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. It's Genesis 22, verses 1 through 13. And we're just going to go through those questions that are on the back. What does this passage teach us about God, either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? What are some of the consequences of the fall in this passage? How do they point towards Jesus? What is God's redemptive solution and what is our future hope? So I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. We'll read one more verse, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It's a well-known story by many of us in this room, the story of Abraham's great faith as he went to offer up his son Isaac as an offering to the Lord. But what does this story look like when we read it in light of some of these themes that we've talked about? This story becomes more than just have faith like Abraham when we ask questions, what does this passage teach us about God? If you look at verse 1 of this passage, we see that right away, God tests Abraham. God tests Abraham. And so what do we learn from, from this verse? Well, God sometimes will test us in our faith. This may be kind of mind-blowing at times. Does God not know whether we trust him or not? I think he does. The test is not necessarily for God, but it is for us that we may succeed and grow and do great things for the Lord. If I had more time, I would talk about the various ways in which God tested Abraham all throughout his life, that he was tested to believe that he would have a son, that he was tested to believe that God would provide food and shelter for him as he went to a land, that there were times in which he failed that test, 
bore children with another woman, fled from the promised land because of drought and famine, that God tested Abraham many times, and Abraham many times failed those tests. But yet God gave another test, another chance for obedience. And here we have the shining example of Abraham's faith, that he passed this test with flying colors, thanks to the work that God had done in his heart. And so if God tested a man like Abraham, do you think God will give you tests in your life? Yes. Does he give tests hoping that you'll fail, hoping that it'll trick you? No, he wants to see you succeed. And he will continue to give you opportunities to do that as he provides. So that's something, very quickly, that I would get from this passage, having used that bookmark, that God does test, but these tests are not bad. It's how we grow in our faith. Secondly, what does this passage teach us about God? There's, there's um, two instances in which we're specifically told, verse 8 and verse 14, that God provides. Abraham says to his son in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then verse uh, 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And so we also learn that God is a God who provides. What does he provide? Well, in this instance, he provides a substitute for Isaac as a sacrifice. But yet, if you're to read the whole sweeping story of Abraham's life, you would see time and time again that God provides for every need that Abraham has. Maybe not in the way that he expects, maybe not in the way that he would personally choose, but God provides for his people exactly what they need. That if you call this God your God, he is a God that provides. He provided land for Abraham. He provided sustenance. He provided son. And yes, he even provided for opportunities and ways in which Abraham could grow in his faith to him. I'm reminded of Hebrews 12 too, that looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That our salvation has been provided by this Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So there's, those are two quick elements from that question that I would draw out. What does this passage teach us about God? But if you move on to the next one, what consequences of the fall do you see in this passage? I think most obvious would be the necessity of a sacrifice. That there is a necessity of a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifice here in this passage is one that is quite jarring. That God, as he tests Abraham, asks him to sacrifice his own son. Kind of God would ask this. This doesn't seem very fair, but again, keeping that whole big story in mind, that we are sinful by nature and by choice. That we should and ought to bear the punishment for our sin. If you recall from Genesis 2, when God was speaking to Adam and Eve in the beginning, Genesis 2:17, they were told, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That as sinners, we deserve death. And so... It's crazy that you would 
have a God saying, put to death your son. But yet be reminded that Isaac is a sinner and should bear the consequence of his own sin. And so any necessity for a sacrifice, any death is a reminder of our guilt before God in any passage. But in this passage, we have a beautiful redemptive solution that beautifully points us to Jesus. So in this passage, what is God's redemptive solution? A substitute. That Isaac was supposed to die, but that ram took his place and died instead. That there was a substitute sacrifice. And I think as we read this story and as we remember our guilt before God, we should be reminded of the substitute that took our place as we should have bore the penalty for our sin. And that substitute is not Abraham's son, but God's son, Jesus Christ. You see, there's elements in this story that mirror Jesus' own life and ministry, particularly his road on the way to Calvary to pay for our sins. If you read this story closely, you see how Isaac's story really mirrors and mimics Jesus' story. That Isaac was Abraham's only son. And Jesus, as the scriptures talk about, is God's unique and only son. Isaac was a long-awaited promised son. Jesus was a long-awaited promised son of God, our Messiah. Abraham was about to bring down his knife on Isaac as a sacrifice for sin, and God would bring down his wrath on Jesus on the cross. Interesting detail, Isaac in this story is the one who carries the wood that he would be laid upon up at the top of this hill. Who carried the cross? Jesus carried the cross that would bear his body as he would be sacrificed for sin. If we had time to study this more in depth, we would know that Isaac was not a young child, but in many ways a young man with an elderly father. And so Isaac is seen as an obedient son who submitted to his father's will, who maybe could have resisted, but did not. In the same way, Jesus submitted to his father's will as he went to the cross for you and me. Abraham went up to a hilltop to sacrifice. This hilltop would have been um, in view or near the same hill that Jesus would later go up to be a sacrifice for sin if it wasn't the exact same hilltop. We can't know for certain. Most importantly, Isaac should have died, but instead the ram was substituted in the same way we should have died, but Jesus was our substitute. So the consequence for sin should have been born towards us, but the redemptive solution is that God provides a substitute. This ram is meant to point us to the greater substitute of Jesus for you and me. Lastly, let's think through this idea of new creation. What is our future hope as it relates to this passage? Well, in some ways, we get to live out some of that future hope even now that there now is no more need for sacrifices. You or I, like Abraham, will never be asked to sacrifice not only our son, but even a goat, nothing. Because Christ has been that perfect sacrifice for us already. We are living in new creation as a result of that. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, For by one sacrifice he made, per- he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
But when we consider what we learned about God earlier, that he tests us in our faith, there will come a time in which our faith will be sight, that we will be with God, either when we go to be with him in death or when he comes to make all things new. In that instance, there will be no more test because we will have no more sin. It'll be put away completely. What a relief, what a burden lifted from our shoulders is that. As someone who's been tested many times and likely as long as the Lord tarries, will be tested many times again. The idea of not having to be tested, but to have my faith made perfect in Christ as I am with him forever, sounds like pure joy. So let us hope in those things. And so this is but a brief demonstration of some of these questions, how they may aid you in your own personal Bible study. I will admit I picked a bit of a softball passage in which some of these things were easy to draw out but I've taught this method to many people, including teenagers, and found it to be extremely beneficial. In fact, some of my favorite Bible studies have been where we gather around to read a book of the Bible using these questions and just going chapter by chapter together. And what a blessing it has been to see even teenagers make observations of the scriptures and draw out truths that I did not originally see but that came from reading the Bible in such a way as to look to and to find it pointing us to Jesus. So I hope that I've given a sufficient explanation, but just know that the best teacher is practice. I would encourage you, dabble in this a little bit. As you do your daily Bible reading, or as you begin some daily Bible reading this week, use this bookmark. Keep a journal. Ask these questions. You may not get an answer to every single one of them initially, but I think as you grow in your familiarity with these things, you will find that you're getting more out of your time in God's word because you're finding more of Christ. And my hope is that as you get excited about finding Christ in the scriptures, you'll get excited about your daily Bible reading. And this value of personal Bible study will not just be something you hear me talk about here at Harvest, but it'll be something that you live out in your own life. And that you'll start to experience that new life and maturity and excitement that comes through being with God in his word regularly. We want this value to define many things that we do. As a pastor who bears responsibility for you as this flock, I hope to engage with you in conversation and make regular part of that conversation. How has your time in God's word been? I hope that it becomes regular part of the conversation that you have with one another, that you could encourage one another with what you've been reading. I hope that many of our Bible study formats will be saturated in scripture and not purely based off of someone's thoughts on a topic or a good video discussion. They have their place. We've done some of these studies already, but I hope that the Bible will dominate our Bible studies. I hope that our services will continue to be saturated in scripture, that we will not only have texts that we're preaching from, but texts that we will sing together, that we will pray together, that we will just read for the sake of reading together. 
that will have more classes and more tools and resources geared towards helping you be more successful and more consistent in your Bible reading as well. But first things first, if you're looking for a time to start, start today. The best way to to receive the blessing from being in God's word is is to have a plan, to find a time in the day that works best for you. It could be morning, it could be evening, it could be afternoon, to be in God's word, trusting that God's word will have its intended effect. I find value in this method, but as I said before, any Bible reading is better than no Bible reading at all. And so let us close in prayer and prepare to worship God again through singing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your word. We thank you for the men that you led to write it as they were carried along by your spirit. Lord, and we even confess our laziness and not running to your word as often as we should. Lord, it is in your word that we find you, Jesus. And it's in you that we find eternal life. And Lord, eternal life is described as knowing you. Lord, and there is so much that could be known just through daily reading of your word. And so God, help us to be people of your word. Help us to love it, to cherish it, to memorize it, Lord, and to share it. We thank you, and we ask that your spirit would lead us in all these things, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.